Welcome to Crisis to Comeback, your Western Colorado climate action podcast. Each episode addresses climate change in Western Colorado with a focus on Delta County. This season of Crisis to Come Back, you'll hear interviews and conversations from local voices in our community, government, renowned scientists, and experts in our Western climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. I'm your host, Corey Stanton, and this week I had the absolute delight of talking with Dr. Heidi Stetzler. Heidi is a professor of environment and sustainability at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, where she's been teaching for the last 15 years. She moved to Colorado in 1994, and she's been here ever since. Heidi's background and accomplishments are vast and are far too many to list on this podcast. But I will tell you one fun fact that she shared with me before we ended our conversation, and that is that this is her third winter ice climbing. Here is Dr. Heidi Stetzler talking about what drew her to a career in science. I have been studying our planet for 30 years. I started doing that in 1992 and wanted to understand the element cycles. So carbon, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus. Um, it sounds exactly what every like what every 21-year-old aspires to doing. Actually, I think I was 20 when I started <laughs> doing that. But what interested me, it was a course for which the subtitle was an analysis of global change. And at that age and at that time of understanding about our planet and what was changing, I thought, if we know more and we figure out more about how the planet works, we'll make better choices. And now fast forward 30 years later, I've been studying high mountains, high latitudes, cold places that do better when they're cold, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle. And we all all know more, not just me. And we're still not making the choices that are consistent with our values. And that's the best way I like to talk about it because it's like, well, who do you want to be? How do you want to show up for this planet and for yourself and for your family? and see whether the actions line up. Yeah, that was very well said. Thank you. Can you talk about the national climate assessment that was recently released from the federal government and what it means for Western Colorado and the Colorado River Basin? And I think also we should clarify that you're based in Durango, just so that the listeners know you have a, a even broader perspective than Delta County, which is the primary focus of this podcast. But also wanting to include the entire Western Slope. So I live in Durango. I, with intention, chose to move to Southwest Colorado. I wanted to be closer to the mountains, the San Juan Mountains and the Western Slope of Colorado. And I wanted to live rural. I knew that by living rural, I would have a different perspective on the changes taking place on our planet. And a wealth of perspective is the way that I like to talk about it, because oftentimes when people don't have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a PhD, the formal system of credentialing that we have in the U.S., we don't see the knowledge as equal. And maybe it is. Maybe those folks who've been living on the land and learning and practicing, they're doing experiments all the time. Every time they plant something different, they water in a different way. They move their animals around on land in a different way. All of that is science too. And so I think we have to see the wealth 
of science going on in every community across the Western Slope and every community across this country. And, you know, to be honest, it's every community in the world because science is just being curious and trying to figure out if I poke this, <laughs> what happens if I change this? what happens and most of us are trying to strive for better care of one another in our communities mm -hmm. so yeah the new national climate assessment has some parts that i think are really exciting to see because they shed light on some communities being underserved some communities being overburdened and i would describe the western slope as fitting both of those so communities that have not yet had the opportunity to accumulate wealth so when something changes it can hit our pocketbooks harder because we have less wiggle room on a weekly basis sometimes for some families to figure out where and how they're going to pay the bills mm -hmm. um, there's so many more folks on the western slope of colorado than in urban environments who might need to make real hard choices to sustain their livelihoods to the best of their ability. So planting different, watering different, differences in the number of animals they can have on the land or having to say it's time to rest. And this industry that I've been in, this approach to agriculture that I've been in isn't gonna work. And where and how do we honor that those are hard choices and then create the opportunity for folks to find what's next should they need to make choices like that. So that's that's featured in this national climate assessment, um, along with what I said earlier, which is one of the key bullets, is that rural and indigenous communities have been the land stewards and the water stewards of our nation. And that highlights that there are folks who put this report together calling out and calling attention and calling in rural regions and saying, hey, thanks. I, that's the way I take it is, hey, thanks. We see you. And then the next step is where and how can we create systems, opportunities for the voices of folks in rural communities to also get to speak to the changes they're going to come about, where and how federal money gets spent, whatever the decisions are, because we're often fewer in number in the rural regions of the U.S. Well greater than 50% of Americans live in urban environments, and I think it might be as much as 70% with that number continually going up since the 50s. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's exciting that our government is listening more and more to the actual people that make up rural areas. And so do you think that these new features that are in the National Climate Assessment are going to affect in a positive way, Western Colorado and the Colorado River Basin? Um, I can't know that. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's one of the things that I like to point out is that because of the way Euro-Western science developed, we often look to science and scientists, people like me, for answers for things that are never what we can know about the future. And so I hope I don't say that in a way that discourages you from having asked the question. What I think is that so much is up to us. And that's the rural us and the urban us and, you know, where and how we can see the connectedness across urban and rural regions. And if water connects us, because it does, right? Water from the Western Slope ends up in places like Phoenix and Denver even because of the way we've sent water places that it didn't normally flow, <laughs> then people need to be connected. And so one of the things I keep thinking about is where and how 
often is it that we from a rural region have the opportunity to go to an urban region and be part of something in an urban community uh, event. In this case, this week, I'm going to be at the Denver Museum of Science and Nature at their Institute of Science and Policy. But where and how can it go the other way too? And we often see folks from urban areas coming to rural regions of Colorado for a holiday and vacation, which may mean that they're not seeing all of all of what goes on in our communities and our regions. Um, they're coming for the snow, they're coming for the wildflowers. And I don't know about you, but I've always wondered what would it be like if some folks got to know what it was like during dust season? So <laughs> that wonderful month of April, I, I love Western Colorado, but I gotta say, April can be tough um, in mm -hmm. some years, right? When the sky's brown and the sunsets are orange and you kind of think, I don't want that in my lungs. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. Or mud season even. And I live in Paonia and our businesses, our farms really thrive on agritourism. So we do see those front range folks coming in and it's great because they're helping the rural population pay bills and, and all that. But yeah, I think it definitely looks more glamorous on the other side. And then getting to know people, like when you step into the businesses that are here, I'm amazed at how many people want to say hi, ask you how your day is going. And I want to ask them how their day is going. That's a wonderful characteristic of rural life. I'm going to guess doesn't happen as much in urban communities. It's been a while since I lived. Um, the most urban I ever got was Fort Collins. So can't say that's <laughs> not that urban. <laughs> and so, you know, when somebody asks you, how's your, how's your day going? We're inviting you in. We're calling you into community with us. Mm -hmm. And people mean it for real. They're not just asking out of measure of politeness. So sure. where and how can we start to have more of those dialogues? Yeah. What suggestions do you have adapting to a hotter, drier climate? Use less water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we have to. And that's, I'm saying that with a laugh and some humor because it's obvious that that's going to be necessary. That's going to be because we may not have all the water we want in the week or the month we want the water for the different agricultural, industrial community needs across the Western Slope and the Western U.S., but also because when it's hotter, more water moves from the land to the sky and it moves off unplanted surfaces to the sky, evaporation, and it moves through trees to the sky. And so it's just like you have a bigger sucking force pulling water up out of the land and into the sky. So we can expect that we'll need to figure out ways to have the water go further, which often means sharing in ways that the rules and the regulations of the compacts that have been in place for a long time may not make it easy to share. And so I think a piece of the puzzle is going to be, will we share anyway? Will we look at the rules and dismiss them and be like, that was absurd. Hopefully the worst isn't going to happen if I don't use all the water that I'm allocated because I want somebody else to have some. So where and how do we make choices like that? And an example, practical example for myself that I'll give you is that um, I bought a property. The, my home is here in Durango. It's up on a hill and we had a whole bunch of aspen trees on the land. And they started dying about two, three years into living here. Um, and we've been in the house for 15 years. And an uh, arborist came by and he's like, well, your trees won't die if you water them. And I just laughed. I, I mean, it was a snorty kind of laugh because I was like, it's okay. 
I can let like there's so many things that water in the West should go for more than keeping these trees alive on my property so I can look at an aspen. I'll go for a hike what I need to see aspen. Right. So where and how can we make those practical choices for ourselves and hope that others will make them too? Um, mm-hmm. More ways to deal with heat too, but I focused on water. Yeah, no, it's so important. And I think the answer you gave is so selfless too. We can expect the vegetation is going to change. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen vegetation change. And maybe vegetation will change because of insects that thrive in hotter times. So the beetles that have been getting at our trees. And maybe it'll change because we make a change in where water goes to and when water goes. We can't control all of the vegetation and keep it exactly the way it is. And what I've learned is that with the way I see landscapes across the Western U.S., um, because of the science training, I'm always thinking, what's it going to be next? Mm -hmm. With some excitement and anticipation and curiosity. So we want to have our eye to what could be potential catastrophes, disasters that come as a result of vegetation change. But otherwise, maybe we just watch it change. Maybe we just say, hey, that used to be a forest. Now it's a shrubland. Okay, it's a shrubland. We can grow new appreciation for the vegetation that's here. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, what is the term for when you were talking about how trees can basically suck the water, absorb the water? What is that term called? Yeah, so the term is transpiration. Okay. And it's the atmosphere that does the sucking. So um, the tree's just a giant straw. It's got water, water in the earth and lots of pipes. So that's part of what I study is how those pipes work. So cool. You've already touched on a little bit, but what are some types of steps that individuals, organizations, and even governments can take to bring us back to come back? Connectedness. So I spoke to that within our communities, uh, within our families, connectedness, from urban to rural uh, regions. So if we're looking at Colorado, where and how can the state of Colorado recognize that a thriving Colorado depends on valuing the diverse opinions across the state with some opinions, potentially there being fewer of them because there's fewer folks living as rural as most of us do on the Western slope. It's definitely a different place to live. Sharing stories is what I think is part of that connectedness and recognizing that if someone's sharing a story, what can we do to fully hear, to tune in, to listen, and to honor what they're offering, especially if it's somebody with a really different livelihood, lifestyle, community, background, experience, uh, race. A lot of folks might be willing to share if they knew that they would be listened to. And Mm. I don't know if you've ever been present when and been the person who's telling a story. And then, well, you're female. So of course this has happened. (laughs) (laughs) And then the person, right. I'm I'm about to go into the mansplaining. Um, Women can also mansplain. It's just that behavior of as soon as you hear what somebody's saying, you're not really hearing, you're looking to speak to what you know, and you may not even recognize the person that you're speaking with knows way more than you do about the thing. So, um, you know, where and how can we recognize that um, some good listening goes along with that and uh, recognize the inequity in financial wealth available across our state. So where and how can government and 
This, I would say, goes to the level of foundations and philanthropies and individuals where and how can they see that the same amount of money in a rural community might support a thriving Colorado much more quickly, much more readily because of the difference in what it costs to get things done in different places. And that's a piece of this underserved communities part of the National Climate Assessment is recognizing that if you're barely making ends meet, you have less wiggle room to make the adjustments. And so we can't then fault folks who can't change what they're doing because it's too much of a risk to be able to still pay their mortgage, for example. For an area like the North Fork Valley with the highest concentration of organic farms, what does this mean for food security? Our farmers on the Western Slope are incredible. The farmer's market where I live, here across Southwest Colorado, so the Cortez one as well as Durango one, I am amazed by what I keep learning for how savvy farmers are. Trying different crops, crops that are more drought tolerant, trying more perennials, trying different mixes. So I tend to think we'll be fine. We live near where our food grows. And then the biggest factor is just that the organic farms and local produce often costs more than what gets shipped in. And Mm -hmm. so we do need to think back to that. Can everyone afford the local eggs? Can everyone afford the local beef? Can everyone afford the local carrots? And what needs to change in the system so that everyone in our communities, but we live near a lot of folks doing an amazing job. I worry more for food security for urban areas because they're more dependent on food coming from afar, Mm -hmm. um, afar from within the state or afar literally from other countries. And so, yeah, I think we can eat more in season. I think we can be less picky about, you know, having a recipe that we want to make and we need to have exactly, but we already do that in the rural Western slope. There's like all kinds of produce I can never get. There's not a Whole Foods down the street. So I'm like, all right, this time of year, squash and potatoes, right? It's squash Mm -hmm. and potato season for what we can make with. And then I'm going to offer this, which is that I have found I do better with meat in my diet, like physiologically. And when I think about what can be a local food product, something that's local and works well in winter, it's stew, Mm. it's chili, it's meat meals. And I don't mean that to suggest that everyone should be eating meat, but that's a piece of the climate crisis conversation too, is where and what proportion of our diets could or should be meat. And in a region like ours, for me, it just seems so logical. I can put meat in the freezer and take it out in the middle of winter instead of buying produce from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you see rural communities becoming leaders in addressing climate change and local warming? Not becoming. We already are. That's been my experience in rural regions. So this fall, I've been on sabbatical from my college faculty position, which means I don't need to teach, and I can invest the time that I have Um, in my position to do work in my field that I think will catalyze what I can offer to students in coming semesters. And as somebody who studies global change, who's presented on global change, who's stepped into writing a 
not the national climate assessment. I wasn't an author on that, but I've been an author on an intergovernmental panel on climate change assessment. I wrote my sabbatical proposal and I said, local action, local action is what and how the change is going to come about because it's more similar to how humans have long operated and long made decisions to think that a whole bunch of folks in Dubai are going to solve our problem for all of us. That's expecting too much of them. They'll do the piece that they need to do. But it's up to us. And I think in rural communities, we're leading because oftentimes we're growing food, we're having conversations with our neighbors, we're coordinating for efforts to reduce the impact of many things, be it the climate crisis, the pandemic, a wildfire, crime. I see rural communities looking out for one another. That's the leadership we need. Um, So it's service leadership. That's what I think I should make sure I say that word. It's relational leadership and it's leadership of service rather than because you have the wealth, the title or the position. And I think rural communities have been in the position to to do that a lot for ourselves and hopefully for others. Mm -hmm. Are you working on anything in particular on the sabbatical? Two things. One is that I wanted to give time to a local nonprofit that I thought was doing some really incredible work. And I picked the Montezuma Land Conservancy here in Southwest Colorado. And they are thinking outside the box for what is the role of a land conservancy and how much is community a part of conversation and how much is cross-cultural work a part of it. So I applied for and have been um, appointed to the board of directors for that conservancy and gotten to learn more about what they're doing. And my hope is that then students will have opportunities to engage with them and do work. And then the second one is going to sound really unusual, at least it is to some, but not to everyone. I started theology school at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. And There is a long tradition of people in science who understand the beauty, the wonder, the awe of our world and the mystery, what we'll never know, wanting to step into the space of understanding where and how through science we can connect to the all-powerful, connect to the divine, connect to God, whichever way we might want to talk about it to the creator. And so, yeah. It's um, one of the classes focused on justice, too, and it makes sense that coursework and training and communities that want to have those conversations are at theology schools. But I never thought I'd be doing that. So anyway, (laughs) that's where I'm at. (laughs) We just heard from Dr. Heidi Stetzler, professor of environment and sustainability at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. I want to extend an extra special thank you to her for taking the time to talk with me during her fall sabbatical. You've been listening to Crisis to Come Back, your Western Colorado climate action podcast, produced and hosted by me, Corey Stanton, and occasionally, I swear, co-hosted by Alan Harvey. Crisis to Come Back is a local and regional weekly short-form podcast that explores the impacts of climate change and the state of warming in Delta County and Western Colorado, and local climate actions taken by individual citizens, businesses, and government. Get informed, inspired, and empowered by listening to these short episodes and become a part of the solution to addressing our rapidly changing local climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. If you have questions, comments, or want to learn more about this podcast, please reach out to us by emailing 
crisis to come back at chc4you.org. Thank you for listening.